Hello and welcome to Physician Interrupted. I'm Dr. Kernan Mannion. Our topic today is the U.S. Justice Department and its investigation of medication-assisted treatment and violations of that by various entities, in this case, by the Indiana Board of Nursing. So the title of this piece is entitled, U.S. Justice Department Puts Indiana Nursing Board on a Monitoring Program. And the board and its professional assistance program, the ISNAP, was told to comply with federal law within seven days or else. The Indiana State Board of Nursing and its PHP equivalent, the curiously named ISNAP program, were informed rather straightforwardly by the U.S. Department of Justice a little more than a month ago that they were in serious violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. This determination applied as well to their exclusively contracted nurse professional assistance program, which is essentially a PHP-type assessment, treatment, and monitoring program, and all its service contractors in their nurse rehabilitation treatment complex. Now, in the written article, which follows this uh, podcast uh, to a T in terms of the narrative, I have a list of abbreviations that you might find really useful. There are about 20 different acronyms that are used in this article, and so it may be helpful to refer to them. In the podcast here, I'm going to try to name them in full and then put the abbreviation behind so you know what I'm talking about here. Now, the Indiana Board of Nursing and its entourage were informed that they were to make corrections to return to compliance, in this case really to achieve compliance, I don't know if they ever uh, were in compliance, within seven days or else face the prosecutorial storm that DOJ would initiate if they refused to comply. Now, I snap. One wonders if they might snap. Now, this is truly a seminal case as it's one that's entered into the medical and healthcare licensing board arena. And it comes along as part of a series of recent investigations and statements of findings that the disability rights section of the DOJ, the ADA enforcement branch that's located in its civil rights division, has undertaken and issued in the past several years. By the way, if you are interested in filing a U.S. DOJ civil rights complaint regarding an ADA violation, and particularly in regards to this topic of medication-assisted treatment, please be sure to visit the DOJ site. It's at https colon forward slash forward slash civilrights.justice.com dot gov gov so you'll be able to find that on the site when you visit there so in essence this is about a state governmental entity here the indiana board of nursing 
holding the position that they have the right to determine who gets to enter into their professional assistance program and who they've supremely determined via their non-articulated medical reasoning should be barred, regardless of prevailing law. And amongst those who were barred from entry, a necessary prerequisite to regaining their license were those nurses who had become addicted to narcotics and who were in recovery, but whose recovery and continued abstinence required the use of a medication to help deter relapse. Two of the psychopharmacologies that have been found to be most helpful for such a recovery are methadone and suboxone. These are well studied. These types of medications essentially block the craving for the opioid that the rewired substance-dependent nervous system demands. And I think it's fair to say that few, if any, people wanted to become addicted or had any idea of how it hijacks the brain's reward system. That deeply wired craving is the key reason for a person's repeat usage of an illicit substance. It's been shown repeatedly in well-accepted studies that when you block that craving, substance use relapse drops dramatically, and treatment-motivated people are then able to resume productive lives. And conversely, when you obstruct use of that anti-narcotic medication or prematurely discontinuous use, relapse rates go right back up. DOJ protects the right to medically appropriate recovery. In an earlier case, the DOJ got involved in a dispute involving an inmate's right to continue medication-assisted treatment for heroin or other narcotic addiction when sent to prison. The prison had essentially taken the position, no way, you got hooked, you've got to come off this on your own. We don't pamper prisoners. If you don't do well off your MAT, your medication-assisted treatment, too bad, it's not our problem. We can't cater to every whim of a prisoner. Besides, you can almost hear them in their internal dialogue with this, you deserve to suffer, you crummy addict. If you die in your withdrawal, it's just one more open cell for us to fill and one less mouth to feed. Good riddance. Now, of course, I am contriving that dialogue. It wasn't really recorded anywhere, but you can imagine that that's what's going on in their thinking. Now, a nonprofit group took up the cause and argued that depriving these recovering addicts of prescribed treatment, and they are recovering addicts, by the way, depriving them of prescribed treatment that is well accepted and known to cut their usage of illegal narcotics and to serve as the basis for their sustained recovery is not just cruel punishment. They argued that it was against the law, specifically the ADA. They argued that as addiction is a recognized disability under ADA, while one is seeking treatment for that addiction and refraining from illegal drugs, 
Depriving a person of access to treatment is akin to discriminating against someone who has any other disability that needs accommodations in order to perform their job and get on with their lives. It's taking a class of individuals with a certain disability and forcing them to undergo a burdensome and dangerous medication-free treatment process deprive them, in essence, of treatment that's available to other people and then to suffer its consequences, where others with disabilities are protected from such a burden. And indeed, the DOJ agreed with that reasoning, and they came on to that case. You can't discriminate against a group of individuals who have a certain disability by imposing burdens on them that are not the same burdens as you might impose on others. You don't make a diabetic go without insulin to prove their capability to do their jobs, do you? So DOJ steps in and twists the arm of the prison system people and says, uh, uh, or then they say, well, okay then, I guess uh, we need to find a way to let them continue their medically prescribed meds. In essence, the prison system navigates a way to make this happen. With the full approval of that state's Supreme Court, was telling newly charged people that they couldn't have access to that state's rehabilitation program, presumably a key element of their pathway to re-entry into the workforce once their punishment term is served, if they were taking Suboxone or similar anti-narcotic medication for their treatment of their opioid use disorder. So the DOJ says to the Pennsylvania court system, which is overseen by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Sorry, guys, you can't do that. You're running a recovery program, which is a public access program. And you're setting conditions of participation that serve the effect of discriminating by setting up a huge barrier against a specific group of people with a disability who require medication for their recovery to be addiction-free and productive members of society. It's arbitrarily discriminatory against this group of people with this recognized disability under the ADA. It's creating additional burdens on them, and as such, it is, by its nature, discriminatory to that class of individuals who have that ADA-covered disability. Now, as seems to be the pattern for some of these comfortably infallible state entities, they seem to have given some pushback to DOJ, essentially saying, we know what we're doing. We don't believe that approach is useful. It's our program. We're the state supreme legal authority, and you can't tell us what to do. Now, again, they didn't exactly say that, but one gets the sense that they gave some pushback to the DOJ. And so DOJ says to the effect, perhaps you didn't fully understand what we said. You can certainly choose not to agree with our reasoning, but if so, realize that we may have to take action against you for violating federal law. We don't particularly care what your reasoning is about why you bar people 
who are on medication-assisted treatment from your rehabilitation and reentry program. Our medically well-grounded reasoning, supported by our National Institute on Drug Abuse Studies, is that such exclusionary treatment is discriminatory under ADA. But please, honorable Supreme Court justices, if you persist, we'll certainly give you your day in court where you can plead your position to federal judges who I suspect are more familiar with federal law than you may be. And so it appears the Pennsylvania Supreme Court concludes, well, in that case, we see where you're going with this, and while we don't agree, it seems like it makes sense to go along. And so the Suboxone prescribed folks in the queue waiting for public access to the Title III Rehabilitation Program are allowed entry and can obtain their medication-assisted treatment while they access the other benefits of that rehabilitation program. DOJ statements of findings of wrongdoing and their consent agreements, which they refer to as settlements, are public record. Now, these are not private, behind-the-scenes negotiations that DOJ is entering into with these agencies. DOJ publishes their statements of findings on its website, which makes you wonder why would a state board, a licensing board, in this case a nursing board, staffed, likely, as nearly all are, with lawyers responsible for compliance with state and federal law, choose to persist in violating federal law. Did their boards ever consult them on these concerns? Or perhaps did they ever take steps to oversee what their boards are doing? Well, if I were to hazard a few speculations, for one, some state occupational licensing boards seem to believe they're above the law, that it's up to them to decide which laws pertain to them and which ones they are going to abide by. And in part, this has been true. Not that they're correct in asserting that they're above the law, but in their truly believing and acting like they are. The concern here is that they're acting in this manner is not just a matter of hubris. It has caused extraordinary injustice and deprivation of rights of licensees who ought to have been protected by these laws. We'll leave for a separate article why licensees' counsel have not been arguing aggressively for these licensees' rights under the ADA and other governing federal laws. Further, since there's no active governmental overseer telling them that what they're doing is in violation of the law, it seems these agencies have presumed that it must not be in violation and that the state's silence on their violation of federal law is really sort of tacit agreement, implied consent. It really raises the question, who's going to investigate patterns of state agency violations of law? We've really got to examine whose role this is 
in state government to monitor adherence to relevant state and federal law. Is this the role of the state auditor, the attorney general? I'm not a student of government, and so I must claim ignorance in how a state monitors its compliance with applicable state and federal laws. Does it solely rely on litigation to challenge violation of that law or to challenge the legitimacy and soundness of that law itself? I fear that may be the operational principle. As I've seen this stance in many physicians' rights cases, the prevailing principle seems to be by the agency, we can get away with it until you challenge us. And until you successfully challenge us, then we can get away with it. (laughs) But even if you do succeed in your challenge, we'll arrange a special settlement with you which has a strict non-disclosure agreement that prevents our wrongdoing from ever being brought public. Fair to say, something is quite seriously disturbed about this, don't you think? And further, I suspect they figure, and rightly here, that very few people are going to challenge their authority, in part out of intimidation and fear of retaliation. But for one, It's very expensive to take on a state agency. The odds are overwhelmingly against the challenger because straight out of the gate, the civil courts assume the integrity and internal coherence of the agency. As a matter of fact, the general principle is that that court can't question the agency's reasoning. The courts seem basically to reason, well, okay, it's a state agency. Surely they've got oversight and internal controls. So unless that's really clearly proven otherwise, we have to presume that they're acting in the bounds of law. And even if they aren't, on a case-by-case basis, which is all that they see, there's bound to be a special reason why. And so we'll cut them slack for that too. In other words, the system is rigged in the favor of the agency and against the individual litigant. And even finding knowledgeable counsel to take on this challenge is quite a tall order. Lawyers know that this is an exceedingly costly process to undertake in this administrative arena. Most licensees don't have a large budget to allocate to defending their licenses while also asserting wrongdoing by the agency itself. And besides, the most you can hope for is to get your license back. You're essentially clawing your way back to ground zero, and you will have lost a lot of practice time in this process and a lot of income In the vast majority of cases, you will not be able to receive compensatory or punitive damages, nor recovery of attorney's fees. Nor, understandably, will any attorney take your case on a contingency basis. They reason high cost, high risk, very low yield. Sad, as one popular tweeter from the past might have remarked, Now, let's take a big view here. Reading between the lines, what 
what's really happening in this remarkable series of ADA medication-assisted treatment cases. And I believe that it's that DOJ, perhaps after receiving a veritable trainload of complaints from aggrieved licensees and other citizens across the country, has finally decided it's got to enter the scene. And upon, end, upon seeing this pattern of flagrant disregard of federal law, I can only imagine that they would just about scream, is there anybody here in a knowledgeable legal capacity who's advising this state organization about its operations being unlawful and against the ADA? Or is there anybody here who even knows what the applicable law is? Or, oh my, God forbid, do you even care? Now, the Indiana Board of Nursing will have to pay compensatory damages to the complainant and other aggrieved individuals for the injustices caused by that nursing board's actions. Now, when you get right down to it, DOJ has ultimately concluded in this Indiana Nursing Board case, we don't know whether you really believe the law doesn't pertain to you or that you believe you've been given special dispensation to ignore the law or whether you thought you could continue to get away with noncompliance simply because it's too expensive for most people to challenge your agency. Or maybe that you're so confident that the administrative and civil courts will continue to rule in your agency's favor no matter what. You know, it's probably some combination of all of these. But DOJ is saying it doesn't really matter. That's for you to examine. And examine you should. Because in this case, we, DOJ, are in fact going to hold you liable for compensatory damages. And compensatory damages not only on behalf of the individual nurse who had the temerity to bring suit, but for others who have been aggrieved by you as a result of your ADA violative policy. Now, the power of this is immense and far-reaching. This introduction by DOJ of compensatory damages is quite exceptional. I would imagine that each nurse who's been deprived of re-entry into their profession due to this program's refusal of medication-assisted treatment applicants has likely lost their license and perhaps been so stigmatized that they've been unable to find work. Now, apart from the pain and suffering accompanying this ordeal, and looking strictly from an income standpoint at this one state, let's speculate that one nurse per year income would be about $100,000. And let's conservatively say, and we're speaking very conservatively here, that there are 10 nurses who have been deprived of re-entry on medication-assisted treatment for the last five years. 
Now, a quick act of math brings that to $5 million. And there, that's just the loss of income. Okay, That's not the cost of the legal proceedings and perhaps other penalties as well. Now, their loss of income will continue because of the stigma of this for the rest of their work lives if they have not been so severely harmed and thrown back into their addiction. It's not difficult to imagine 30 to $50 million as an expected cumulative damage in this very limited scope scenario. And I wouldn't be surprised if DOJ was conducting similar calculations when it looks at the extent of damages. Now, let's just make note here. This could get very, very costly, not just for the Indiana Board of Nursing. If DOJ finds a similar pattern with other boards, nursing, medical, dental, veterinary, all the other specialties in healthcare, and also holds them liable for compensatory damages. Whew, now we're talking serious money. When the North Carolina Dental Board lost its antitrust case in the U.S. Supreme Court against the independent non-dentist tooth whitener businesses that they'd threatened to arrest and they actually succeeded in running out of business in the state. The Supreme Court essentially told the dental board, sorry about the bad news, guys, but in addition to losing your antitrust case, you're on the hook for the damages and attorney's fees. And whether you or the state pays is up to you guys to work out. And good luck. And keep flossing. <laughs> The bottom line, DOJ is saying to the Indiana Board of Nursing and all other governmental regulatory authorities that what matters here is that you are in overt violation of the ADA. We don't care what your reasoning is. We don't care what cherry-picked industry-influenced studies you cite to support your policy. And we're not going to sweep it under the rug just because your powerful government-selected honchos who write your own rules and all the courts bow to your infallible determinations. It doesn't matter whether your governor gives you a wink and a nod and a thumbs up or whether your legislature declares you the infallible czar of your profession or the FSMB or FSPHP or the AMA supports you. It does not matter one wit. There are federal laws that protect all citizens of this nation no matter what state they reside in. And as long as you're part of this confederation we refer to as the United States, you must abide by them. That's rather sobering, don't you think? I bet it must be especially so for those who enforce sobriety for a living. <laughs> I suspect they've not experienced this version of sobriety before. And it is greatly heartening to those who have advocated for physicians and other healthcare clinicians' rights when dealing with their challenge-resistant, feedback-deaf licensing boards 
and their especially contracted preferred professional assistance programs. So what's this mean for docs who've been or are being harmed or soon to be harmed by their boards or PHPs or their healthcare organizations who are employing similar discriminatory tactics? What it means is that every physician and healthcare clinician who has been harmed or is being harmed by the illegal policies of the uniformly restrictive abstinence-based PHPs in their state or their relatives, the professional assistance programs or whatever they may call them, and harmed also by the rubber stamping support and license restriction or revocation by that licensing board or credentialing authority, every person who's been harmed by these entities now has extremely good cause to bring action against that entity if their ADA rights have been abused. And they should also file a complaint with the U.S. DOJ's Disability Rights Section After all, the only way they'll know there's violation is if you report it and they investigate. And by the way, this is not new law. There's no new amendment that has been signed to open up this protection. It's assertive enforcement of existing law that has been routinely and severely abused. Now, we'll reserve for another piece to look more closely at an until now entirely unexplored question, one that I alluded to earlier. Why aren't state authorities and lawyers within these agencies taking an active role to mandate compliance with federal and state law? In other words, why are individual licensees having to prove wrongdoing by the state when the state should have been regulating itself? My speculation? It's probably some combination of ignorance, arrogance, cronyism, playing the odds that they're not going to get caught, agency protective non-disclosure agreements that prevent it from being discovered, and frank moral cowardice. Because I suspect this is a question that DOJ itself is bound to have been pondering. It's as if DOJ has got to be asking itself, hey, state governments, what the hell's going on with your own oversight and compliance mechanism and your agency's internal compliance controls? Why are you not abiding by the ADA? a 31-year-old federal law with well-established guidance. And why is it up to us to come in to have to tell you to shape up? I think it would be perfectly appropriate for DOJ to ask, if you don't have active oversight by your state government with regard to your compliance with law, then are you really a state agency? that can be rightfully invested with police powers and be eligible for immunity from suit? 
I think that question really bears examining, especially in light of the North Carolina Dental Board's assertion that it was a state agency and immune from prosecution. And the court found that, sorry, you're mistaken about that. Under antitrust law, you are not. Now, in the next article, we will explore what might be the larger meaning of DOJ's actions and what that might portend for similarly situated agencies in the medical regulatory arena who are trampling over physicians' rights, namely medical boards and physician health programs and a variety of abusive peer review and performance appraisal credentialing entities. Personally, I think it augurs well. I suspect that DOJ is just getting its feet wet and is carefully studying the State Occupational Licensing Board territory. And if so, oh boy, unwarranted mandates for fitness for duty evaluation under threat of emergency suspension of license and interruption of care, complete lack of individualized case analysis by the referring entity, namely the medical board, denial of due process, unethically conducted and illegal medical examinations prohibited by EEOC guidance, routine use of suspect laboratory tests known to produce false positives and explicitly advised against by SAMHSA, forced treatment at preferred programs, interrogation by polygraph experts on staff at these programs, exclusive use of abstinence-based programs for recovery centered upon a religious model with explicit prohibition of utilizing any other medically supported treatment programs, arbitrary and capricious terms of monitoring, Violations of legally protected confidentiality of protected health information. Physician health programs conducting medical activities such as psychiatric consultations and ordering and interpreting medical and psychological tests with no physician on staff as a qualified medical officer and not even registered as a medical corporation carrying malpractice insurance. Oh my, the list goes on and on and on. Someone needs to warn DOJ that they're about ready to enter the twilight zone. Now, DOJ's monitoring program isn't new, the one that they applied to the Indiana Board of Nursing. Meanwhile, back in Louisiana in 2014, the DOJ put the Louisiana Bar and its overseeing authority, the Louisiana Supreme Court, on a four-year monitoring program for their failure to refrain from asking impermissible mental health questions on their bar exam. And by 2019, the Louisiana Bar had completed its very detailed four-year monitoring agreement. And a colleague's review of records obtained under FOIA from that compliance monitoring period indicates that, in fact, 
they did indeed comply with that monitoring agreement, and it was quite detailed, let me assure you. Maybe it'd be good if the Indiana Board of Nursing had a chat with the Louisiana bar people to see how it went for them, living under the scrutiny of federal prosecutors who could likely yank their very license authority as a bar if they continued to act in illegal ways. Imagine. Boy, I sure wish there were a 90-day program they could all go to where the boards and PHPs could learn about their worsening character disorder manifested by their grandiose, above-the-law, dictatorial arrogance and become more open to guidance from a higher power. They'd get to attend legal and ethics educational classes and read from the big book of federal laws and learn to live more wholesomely, free of the destructive craving for power and prestige. And when they left the program, just to be sure they're safe to practice, they'd be put on a compliance monitoring program for five years run by the U.S. Attorney General's office. Oh, such devilishly wishful thinking. But hey, here's a idea. When a state licensing agency or any of its rehabilitation industry entourage violate federal law, then what about this? Have the entire entourage, the board, the PHP and its board of directors, all the others in that treatment complex who chose to violate the law, have them all be ordered to report to a four-day program where every member of a board and PHP and all the other treaters in this complex would have to pay out of pocket and they'd have to be assessed by DOJ lawyers, perhaps even with polygraphs if necessary, to determine if they're fit for medical regulatory leadership or perhaps if they constitute a danger to the public. Hmm. Some provocative ideas. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kurdan Mannion, and you've been listening to Physician Interrupted. If you find that this has been a, an informative and useful podcast, I encourage you to share it with colleagues and tap into the written version where you'll see a truckload of footnotes and find references that you can track down these resources. Thanks again for joining us on Physician Interrupted. I'm Kurdan Mannion, and until next time, be well. Take care.